Two and a half admins, 46. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got another blog post to promote, Alan. Once again, part of your History of FreeBSD series. So this time we're talking about the introduction of Net1 and Net2, which were the first releases of the BSD source base with TCP IP built in. And uh, it's a very interesting history of how that came about when originally the uh, military had paid a company to build the, the source code for TCP IP and, and make the internet um, before it was called the internet. But the people at Berkeley working on BSD got a beta copy of it and were like, no, this is terrible. And then rewrote it and made it much faster. And then that became the default implementation, uh, reference implementation of TCP IP. Link in the show notes as usual then. Let's do some news. The first one is, is it fair to call this a fiasco, what's been going on with the Western Digital MyBook NAS devices? Do you think fiasco's too cruel? It's <laughs> not strong enough, I think. <laughs> I, we're allowed to swear on this podcast, right? It's a fucking clusterfuck of epic proportions. <laughs> this is just like people remotely deleting everything on your NAS. I think it was three or four separate vulnerabilities and what appears to have been dueling hackers fighting for control over your device. And one of them was just like, fuck it, then we'll just erase everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just factory reset, delete all the data. Yeah, there's one remote code execution that allowed you to just do a factory reset. And I guess that was faster than telling it to delete stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, quite a mess. And then we got a, a follow-up we see later, just yesterday, I think, they found another remote code execution. So it's quite a mess. Maybe no matter what it says on the box, don't connect your cheap consumer device directly to the internet for the entire world to touch whenever they want to. Maybe that's a bad idea. Yeah, it's not clear how much of this works through their weird cloud mediation stuff. Part of the point of these my books is supposed to be that even when it's behind that, there's still a way for your phone to be able to get to it or something. Oh, no, 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 no. When it's behind that, it uses universal plug and play to not be behind that. That's kind of what that boils down to. <laughs> there you go. Again, don't let the entire grubby world touch your NAS. Yeah, but it's not the fault of the people who went out and bought one. If the device claws a hole in your firewall for itself and you don't know it, that's uh, a little bit different than you blasely hanging his ass out on the internet. Well, I don't know, because that's the thing about these my books is, you know, the, the advertising and marketing around these things is very, very strongly focused on the idea that, you know, you put all your crap on a my book and you can get at it from anywhere in the world without any further configuration. It's just super duper easy <laughs> to touch all your files from anywhere, from any machine. But this is not aimed at technical people, is it? This is aimed at people who want to back up their photos and stuff. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my whole point. When a product says you as a non-technical person who doesn't know anything about these things, it's super easy. Just put all your data on this thing that will automatically expose itself to the entire internet and it'll be great <laughs> as a non-technical person. The only thing you need to know about all that is no, that will not be great. Don't do that. But it seems that the, it's a bit more complicated as it usually is. The first thing I heard was that oh, Western Digital, like we're not going to fix it. I was like, really? Uh, but it turns out it's slightly more complicated than that. The first set of vulnerable ones were running Western Digital's MyBook OS 3. But they've, at some point, stopped supporting OS 3 and have OS 5. And they've patched that. I can't wait till they get to OS 10. <laughs> it turns out, during the upgrade, or change from 3 to 5, 
a lot of features went away, like just weren't available anymore or didn't work properly in the new version. So a lot of people stayed on the old version because all those features that were listed on the box that they depended on weren't available in the new version of the operating system. And so it's like, yes, you should install your security updates, but what do you do when that disables all of the features <laughs> that you maybe depended on? Yeah, and Western Digital won't patch that old version of the operating system. And their only solution is upgrade to this newer version of the software, but it's basically completely different software. Yeah, or if your device isn't supported by that newer version of the software, then upgrade your device is what their advice is. I mean, to be fair, this is kind of how the world works, right? I mean, Microsoft's not still patching Windows 3.11 for work groups either. Again, yeah, it's down to Western Digital's only going to support it for so long, and you have to plan that into your the life cycle for it, right? Especially these consumer devices tend to have much shorter life cycles than a more prograde thing that might, you know, offer you three or five years of being able to upgrade it before you're expected to replace it. But, you know, if you bought it at Walmart, don't expect for it to be supported any longer than it's still sold at Walmart. <laughs> when they switch to selling the next year's model, you're out of luck. And again, you know, I'm, I'm harping on this, but I feel like it's important to harp on it and keep pointing it out. When you've got a device that's saying, hey, access your stuff from anywhere in the world, that's not the device that you ignore security updates for and, you know, just keep the thing running when it's wildly out of support. It's one thing to be running, you know, some old unsupported IoT gadget or whatever that's like on your network, but you have to be connected to your network to access that thing. That's not not a problem, but that may be a livable problem, you know, for a lot of people in a lot of circumstances. But when your device is exposed to the internet, you have to take it very seriously. It has to be all the way up on its security patches. It has to be from a company that can be trusted to make a device exposed to the entire internet. And, you know, Western Digital, they they make a lot of hard drives. They're not real well known for their super hardened server applications. Yeah, but I can take Joe's point that the people that this is marketed to have no way to know any of those things. Which is why they have to play it extra safe. My whole point is like, this is the one message to get across to those folks is think about how many people potentially could touch it. The more people that could touch it, the more seriously you need to take it. If you're not prepared to take it that seriously, if you're not capable of handling it, if you can't manage it, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, just pay for iCloud instead. But I, I don't know, it just seems a little bit like you know, if a car manufacturer is like, yes, this car is amazing. It only sometimes catches on fire. And then you get burned alive in it. It's like, yeah, but you should have known better. <laughs> car analogy alert. Yeah. Uh, kind of a, that's, that's not really the angle that we're looking at here. It's, it's more a thing of like, well, we can't at 2.5 admins magically unfuck the entire world and keep Western Digital from offering you some piece of crap that, you know, is going to get all your data deleted. Therefore, whether it's fair or not, you have no choice but to make reasonably sane decisions. I guess the other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about here was just that uh, dichotomy, especially with updates, is that, you know, what a lot of people want with a device like this is, you know, I want the security patch for this problem. But oftentimes, all you get is, here's the next version of the software, which includes that security fix, but a bunch of other things you weren't looking for. For a home user, that's usually less of an issue. You know, you don't have the same kind of change management stuff you have to try to do to make sure that installing something that's just a security update is much lower risk than installing something that's changing the major version of a piece of software and who knows how it's going to interact with all the other 
components of an infrastructure. But at the same time, we can't expect Western Digital to keep offering pure security updates for old hardware either. What's a reasonable amount of time that a, a provider has to or should still make pure security updates instead of just forcing you to go to newer versions of the operating system? I don't think there's really a standard for it. And maybe at some point we get to something where these devices will say on the box how, you know, guaranteed security updates until 2022 or something. But then you see CentOS and somebody changes their mind after, and then the date's not the date that you thought it was. <laughs> well, with CentOS, there was no guarantee. It was just an assumption by the community. So that's a little bit different. But I was going to bring up the example of Ubuntu, say. Say you did a deal with Canonical. Say Western Digital did the deal with Canonical to run Ubuntu on these devices. Then they would be guaranteed with an LTS five years of support and an upgrade path potentially to the next LTS for another two years. Well, the operating system would be, but the operating system's not really the problem here. The problem is Western Digital's own application stack. Which I'm sure was uh, out of date terribly before they ever shipped the software the first time. (laughs) Yeah, but if they were just using Samba and stuff that was in the Ubuntu repos. Yeah, but all these remote code executions are in the web app that they wrote on top of this. Basically, it's all problems in the control panel part of it that then configure Samba. And that control panel part of it is allowed to run sudo or something and then... If you can convince the web app to to take your input without validating it and run it through sudo, then you can do whatever you want. Or you just get a web shell off of, you know, some vulnerability in the app stack on that device. This is not to say that you're not going to find, you know, kernel level vulnerabilities in devices like this because you absolutely will. You know, they tend to use extremely outdated kernels. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, when you test things like wireless routers and stuff, have you ever looked at... How many of them are still using like a 2.6 kernel? Yeah, but those are not usually the vulnerabilities that people are popping to get remote code execution. The kernel vulnerability is more often going to be a way, once you get a shell, if that shell is not a root shell, to make it a root shell. But actually popping that shell to begin with, you're almost always going to be exploiting the user interface portion specifically of the application stack coming from that particular vendor for that gadget. Uh, For the simple fact that the user interface is usually the most complex part and kind of the hardest part to write unit tests for that, you know, really catch all the problems. Like it's a lot easier to understand and to uh, enumerate all the ways that you should or should not be interacting with a network stack. Right. But when it comes to like, you know, which buttons do you click and in what order things get a little screwier. It's a little harder to just write automated tests to make sure that you catch every possible problem with that. Yeah, and in in those cases with things like routers, almost all the vulnerabilities have been either some way to access a function that you're supposed to have to be logged in to access, but you somehow were able to cheat and not be logged in or log in with static credentials that weren't supposed to be there. Or a hard-coded backdoor. (laughs) Yeah, or even put an image on a website, convince the user to go to that website, and then it logs in with them from the local LAN to the device. And the device is like, oh, you're on the local LAN, so you don't need to log in. Or some input validation thing where you can send something to the device and it mishandles it and ends up running a command by whether it's just, you know, put a semicolon in a string and it ends up running it and then it's two separate commands and it doesn't check the second one or whatever. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. 
From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com 25A. Let's talk about Windows 11 then. So this was announced just a day after we recorded last time. So it's been a couple of weeks now. So a fair bit of info has come out about this. I think one of the biggest controversies is the hardware that this will or will not support. It's a mess, frankly. It's a mess even to try to talk about it. So the obvious requirement that initially got everybody all flustered was you need to have TPM capability on your system. And there was a lot of misunderstandings about that because most people didn't really know or care much about TPM. Either you're part of an enterprise and you're buying, you know, HP desktops that have a uh, hardware TPM module soldered onto the motherboard or you're not and you just kind of don't care. And the thing that most people didn't realize is that every modern CPU has TPM support baked in. Now, it's usually disabled by default in the BIOS on your motherboard itself. So you have to actually go in and enable virtual TPM support for your CPU. And not all motherboards actually expose that option in the BIOS, unfortunately. But all of this is still just kind of a red herring because TPM is one requirement for Windows 11. It's not the only one. And Microsoft has been kind of cagey about the other ones. They have right now an allow list, if you will, of CPUs they support for Windows 11, and it does not go far, go back very far. It goes back like three years. You know, you got eighth gen core processors and, uh, you know, Ryzen starting with Zen Plus. And that support list is not about TPM only because, you know, TPM support on the Intel side goes all the way back to the sixth generation, uh, in some cases, even a little bit farther. But there are, some unnamed security features in more modern CPUs that Microsoft says they're just doubling down on, you know, that's going to be a requirement because Windows 11 is going to be their most secure Windows ever. But they have not to date enumerated exactly what those requirements are. They just have this list of CPUs. And if your CPU is not on it, then the tool says not supported. There's also a bunch of ARM SOCs that are supported. But unsurprisingly, this has already been hacked. We've got these developer preview builds and people have got them running on all sorts of hardware, including Raspberry Pis. And I've seen a guide about how to basically trick the installer by copying some files around using a Windows 10 ISO and a Windows 11 ISO. People are going to get around this. Well, sure. And the interesting question is how much of this gets walked back to some degree. Mm. Because it's not a thing of Windows 11 is incapable of running without these features. It's that Microsoft just doesn't want to support it on anything less than. Now, the other thing about that is you see all these people saying, oh, well, I found out, you know, all these ways to to make this work. Well, guess what? The preview builds don't actually have everything locked out. The preview build, particularly on a virtual machine, is perfectly willing to install on literally anything it can run on. The TPM check is waived. 
The difficult thing right now is that you can't do a clean install because you, you don't have any way to download a Windows 11 ISO. So you've actually got to install Windows 10 first, and then you've got to run the uh, Windows 11 update tool on that Windows 10, assuming that you're in the dev channel for the Insider program, which I am. I went through this whole thing. So UFI versus BIOS is particularly a pain in the butt for virtual machines. Take, for example, uh, Linux KVM and Vert Manager. If you set up a Windows virtual machine on BIOS firmware, then you can just right-click the desktop and, you know, change the resolution like you normally would. And the window for your VM will adapt to whatever you set the physical resolution to. If you boot that same VM from Eufy, you don't have that option. It has a fixed resolution that can't be changed from within the running VM itself. You actually have to go into the BIOS settings for that UEFI firmware and change your preferred resolution there, which is one of several paper cuts that way. And it's just, it's stuff that you have to deal with and how much of that is going to make it into production. We don't know yet, but it's also too early to say how easy it will be to work around it because you don't have to work around it right now with the insider builds. Do you know if the non-insider builds are going to also require secure boot, not just UFI? It's not super clear yet. Microsoft's messaging has not been very great or very consistent. Yeah, they used the word capable, didn't they? Yes, their specific wording has always been secure boot capable, not that it requires secure boot to be enabled. Now, your guess is as good as mine as to whether that is exactly what they meant or just kind of how it came out. I know a, a few people that, because of the pandemic, had to go out and buy the little TPM add-ons for their motherboard uh, to support the Windows 10 disk encryption stuff uh, that was required by their employer to access you know, the company source code from home and things like that. Except they didn't. They could have just enabled the CPU The virtual TPM thing support. if they had yeah. read the stuff, yeah. But, you know, then it wasn't a big deal because they weren't expensive, whereas now they're at least a couple of weeks ago, it seemed that people were price gouging on them pretty badly. Well, yeah, they thought they were going to get on the scalping action before they realized that actually you don't need this hardware module. The other big headline is Android app support via the Amazon App Store. I am super excited about that. As far as I can tell, it's not enabled yet in the Insider builds. I went digging and digging and digging looking for Android apps in my uh, dev channel Insider build Windows 11 VM, and I could not find it. And I did discover the Microsoft Store itself is easily as predatory and gross as the Android app store is. <laughs> you know, one of the things that always comes up when you get a new version of Windows is, uh, you know, you, you get the people that complain about any new version of Windows. And one of the things they'll always say is, you know, what horror did they do, you know, in terms of me just being able to play a simple game of solitaire now? Uh, you know, because Microsoft, when Microsoft first took out the classic solitaire and free cell and minesweeper it drove people berserk and none of those people have forgotten it they're still angry about it and so when i went digging through my windows 11 vm one of the first things i looked at was all right well you know what do we have to do to play free cell and um it wasn't installed by default which wasn't a big surprise it was like okay so microsoft has made a big point out of you know everything everybody should be using the microsoft store now we've revamped it for everything and all the different application types you know uwp and uh, PWA and everything else in the world, Win32, just all exists happily side by side in the Microsoft Store. Do everything in the Microsoft Store. So I went in the Microsoft Store looking for free sell. And the thing that I found, I say the thing that I found, I didn't really go looking for it. It was literally on the front page of the Microsoft Store as one of Microsoft's three recommended apps that show up immediately when you go into the store. And uh, 
it's one of those like you you have your energy replenishes over time and it takes a little bit of energy to play every game and like you need gems to pay for it if you want to undo like a card placement or something and the game actually encourages you like here's your free undo try it right now whether you need to undo anything or not and then it's like oh yeah that'll be 25 gems and I had run out of energy, you know, test playing this stupid thing in less than half an hour, which actually makes it worse than most of the really predatory Android things, which at least try to give you like a week or so of a reasonable gameplay before they really tighten the screws. The one I've heard most complaining about from more business oriented Windows users is the opposite. It's like, why is there an ad for Candy Crush in my start menu? <laughs> this is a business computer. It's like we paid for the business version of Windows 10 why are there ads for Candy Crush in the start menu? That's going to be the double-edged sword of Android apps, isn't it? That you'll get useful stuff potentially, but then there'll also be a lot of just bullshit like that. Well, I also say it's weird. It's nested as like, in the Microsoft Store, you can install the Amazon App Store app and then use that to install Android apps. Yeah, <laughs> but you will be able to sideload APKs apparently. And there are already some really dodgy applications in the Microsoft Store that say they'll allow you to run APKs. I found that when I was trying to look for the Amazon App Store to be able to test all this in my Windows 11 VM. I was not able to find either the Amazon App Store or anything from Microsoft to allow you to load APKs. But uh, weird, dodgy stuff from vendors you've never heard of, you know, saying APK load here. Yeah, (laughs) there's plenty of that. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions or your feedback, the best way is show at 2.5admins.com. And if you are a patron, you can send us a message there and your question will get bumped up the queue, which is exactly what Thor has done before and is doing again, but will allow it. His question is about performance on a Windows guest on an Ubuntu 2104 KVM host. He says, when looking for articles on how to get the most out of my soon-to-be game streaming host Windows VM, I came across Jim's article on the performance of Zvol and QCOW2. I understand that in 2018, the best setup was QCOW2 tuned to 8K clusters on a Zvol formatted with EXT4 using write-back cache settings in KVM. Has anything changed there, or am I good setting it up like that? Regarding CPU performance, I'm unable to find a setting in Vert Manager that exposes multiple cores to Windows. At least as far as I can tell in Task Manager, Windows only sees one core. Is this due to the fact that I'm testing with an unlicensed version of Windows from Microsoft's page, and it would support multiple cores if I pony up the cache, or something entirely different? I think I know the answer to this one. 
you have to go into the CPU topology and uh, change it to one socket and then the number of cores and threads that you want. That is correct. Now, with that said, so by default, when you just bump up the CPU count in Vert Manager without going into topology, it will just bump up sockets every time. So if you tell it, give it 16 CPUs, it will give 16 sockets to the VM. And uh, consumer versions of Windows don't know what to do with that. They will ignore anything past the first two sockets. Or if you're on uh, Windows 10 Enterprise, I believe, or uh, most Windows Server versions, It'll recognize up to four sockets, but again, that's typically as far as it'll go. But going into the uh, topology, um, generally, I would recommend setting it uh, similarly to the way that your actual CPU is set up. So you're usually going to want, if you're giving your CPU for your guest, if you want to give it eight threads, then you should usually set that up as uh, four cores with two threads per core. So that's just like a hyper-threaded, you know, CPU on your host system. You can also just set it up all cores. The reason that I tend to recommend setting it up and, you know, matching as cores and, uh, you know, symmetric multi-threading uh, or hyper-threading rather than just giving it what supposedly are all these full-fledged virtual cores is that the, uh, you know, hyper-threading doesn't really work quite like a complete extra core does. And to the extent that the guest operating system is estimating its own performance based on how many threads it has versus how many cores, I'd prefer not to lie to it. Because if you don't go in and actually pin your individual guest threads to, you know, host CPU threads, you don't really quite know what it's going to get fed as far as, you know, cores or just hyper threads. Moving on from that into the storage part. For the most part, everything stays the same. Uh, I do still recommend QCAL2 or raw images rather than ZVols, I did find that they performed better. As far as whether you're doing uh, 8K clusters or 64K, unless you know for a fact you're doing a ton of 8K IO, and I don't mean opening 8K files, I mean like database style IO inside your guest, I would not tune that far down. The default cluster size for QCOW2 image files is 64K, and I think that's probably a... Uh, Really good default. If you don't know for a fact that you need something smaller, that's probably the right thing to shoot for, which means you should be setting your record size to 64K to match. But basically, you want your underlying workload and your QCOW2 cluster size, if appropriate, and your record size. You want all three of those to match. So if you're doing like, you know, Microsoft SQL Server stuff in your guest, then that's probably going to mean a lot of 16K random I.O. You probably want uh, your clusters and your record size, and your everything else tuned to 16K. You probably even want your NTFS inside the guest tuned specifically for 16K performance. The most important thing is everything needs to match from your workload all the way up to the top. Specifically for games, yeah, the bigger size is going to work out better. It'll be less overhead loading each chunk and so on, and you'll just get better throughput by having the, the larger size because, you know, if you're loading a level in the game, it's going to be reading, you know, half a gigabyte or more of data off the disk, It'll do that a lot easier with a bunch of 64K chunks than eight times as many 8K chunks. Okay, Mika says, I'm definitely closer to a half admin than a full admin, and I'm probably just too dumb, but can someone point me to a YouTube video walking through how to set up Sanoid from scratch, just to take and prune snapshots on an arbitrary schedule? I've read the docs and I'm missing something. Where is the production template defined? How does one create a template? Do I even need a template? Do I need to install a cron job, or does the Sanoid installer automatically do that? So from the top, uh, I am unaware of a YouTube video walking somebody through setting up Sanoid from scratch. 
But as far as where the production template is defined, it's defined right there in your sanoid.conf itself. If you look at the vanilla sanoid.conf, there's a comment line that says templates below here, and you'll see another section in square brackets that uh, says template underscore production. That's your production template. Uh, you don't need to use a template, but it makes things a lot cleaner and simpler because if you were to say in your own module definition for a particular data set on your drive that you want to snapshot, if you were to say use template equals production, well, then it will just apply all the settings in the production template. Uh, you can override any of those settings individually if you need to. You can define your own template and just the same way that you see the production template defined. And that's, that's pretty much that. And as far as the cron job and the Sanoid installer, that's where things get a little hinky because you didn't say what operating system you're actually using. And vanilla Sanoid directly from GitHub doesn't have an installer. You just copy the files into user local bin and you copy the configs into et cetera Sanoid and off you go. Now, from what I understand, the Debian installer I believe it creates a system D timer automatically for Sanoid, but that's something that you would definitely want to double check and make certain of. I did not write the Debian installer. I don't maintain it. Um, Ubuntu also inherits that installer from what I understand. So you'll have to kind of double check that. Uh, you may want to pop on over to, to Reddit and ask that question in RZFS. I know there are a lot of people there who are using Sanoid uh, with system D timers. Uh, but personally, yeah, I just use cron and I add my cron jobs manually. You're so old school. Damn right. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.